The knowledge of what to do oftentimes exists in the space of language, but language is not a proxy for real life. Language is limited in its ability to clearly articulate everything that we do and experience as humans. And so it's a very crude way for us to share insights to get us on the path to action, but it is not a replacement or a proxy for action. And where most people fail is not in their knowledge of what to do. We already said this with diet and exercise as a singular example. The failure is in the, the knowledge and maybe the motivation in certain instances to actually put it into practice, the knowledge of how. Craig, how, how are you? I'm I'm very good. I'm very good. How are you? I'm I'm fantastic. Just got off a day of of coaching outdoors with other people, and it's a good day considering that's a rarity in COVID times. What's the weather like in Ireland? Horrible. <laughs> <laughs> but being around people makes it all all the better. And you know what? Five. Five and a half years now living living in Ireland, you know, you just, you can't be bothered by the rain. I have to say, I'm so impressed by the Irish. Nothing stops them from getting out, having a good time, picnics in the pissing rain, nothing stops them. And so it's been, it's been good. It's been really good. Well, I was just about to ask you, do, do even professional sports players moan about the weather? Uh, if they do, not to me. I haven't heard it. It's almost like a rite of passage. Now I can tell you, if the temperature wasn't just right, you know, when I'd work with some of my American football guys uh, back home, you might hear some whinging. I had so many players back home that would say things like, listen, coach, I'm going to complain every step of the way, but just be sure I'm going to keep on walking. I said, okay, that's the deal. That's fine. You say every, anything you want as long as you keep moving in the right direction. The players here, they don't complain and they move in the right direction. So it's, it's been a treat moving from, uh, American football to rugby, very different culture. It's funny you mentioned American football because I used to play it. Not stop it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I used to. There's uh, you're probably not aware, but there's a there's a burgeoning British league called the British American Football Association. Um, there, there's divisions. There's a Premiership division. There, there's the lower oh, levels. Lord. I used to play for the Yorkshire Rams, and then I played for the Leeds Bobcats. And where I'm sat right now in Yorkshire in the UK, there's probably four or five teams w within a decent region from me. So are you like the Tom Brady of Britain? I mean, what's the deal here? What position did you play? <laughs> well, I started I started playing when I was 15. And at that point, it was okay. flag. So we were playing flag, non-contact. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And it was five a side. So I was playing both sides, offense, defense. And I was playing... Wide receiver, always terrible at quarterback. I played wide receiver and a bit of running back, and then, well, on the on the on the D side, you kind of you're playing like a weird zone thing anyway because it's five a side. Okay. So yeah, I yeah, 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 yeah. Kind of a cornerback sort of thing. I was always tall, gangly, and not very fast. So um, I often got put in kind of on a five a side, like a linebacker position, so I could knock the ball down. Um, okay. And then when I I moved on to play full 
you know, full American football when I was 17 or 18, I played, I was for some reason on the O-line for a little bit and I hated it. Um, and then I got put as a defensive end and I absolutely loved it. Yeah. Go get the ball. That's all you need to know. Go get the ball. That, that's the world of a defensive end. Yeah, it's it's simple and it's much more of a psychological game when you're on defense. It is. Uh, Absolutely. That's what I always enjoyed, getting in people's heads and smashing people as well, obviously. <laughs> but, but Craig, how does one in the football capital of the world find themselves playing the funny version of it? Yeah. <laughs> uh, because I've always been a bit of an outcast and I've always been a contrarian and I've always okay. hated soccer. So yeah. um, even when I was at school, I was kind of, they call them moshers over here. I was, I was into yeah. Slipknot and, you know, all that kind of thing. So oh, there, yeah. there was no way I was playing soccer. So I ended up just finding American football and just playing it and absolutely loving it. It was the first time I'd enjoyed sport in my entire life. And, and Craig, would you believe that Slipknot would have made uh, the top 10 list of the pre-training jams in every high school football team, at least when I was growing up? So we were kindred spirits across the pond. I assume you played football, right? I did. I did. I played defensive end like you, and I played center, the guy that, that snapped the ball. I needed far more intelligence than I had to play that position, which is probably why I was cannon fodder for four years rather than uh, rather than starting. But you know what? My, my father taught me one thing. He's like, son, you started it. You're going to finish it. So four years later, a lot of lessons learned. And I fell in love with training, which I guess is the story of how one becomes a strength coach. Those that can't teach. And I'm the version of that in strength and conditioning in sports. Yeah, well, I was going to be the first question. How did you end up where you ended up? Obviously through football somewhere. <laughs> yeah, well, I had, you, you know, the uh, American film Rudy about the walk-on football player at Notre Dame. Uh, his name was Rudy, and basically he does everything in his power to make this team, which he's not fit to make, but inevitably through hard work, aspiration, and a bit of luck, he gets on it, and, you know, inevitably gets to play in this last big game. And so Rudy is kind of a cult classic uh, within the United States, especially with American football. And so I had a strength coach named Rudy who embodied this, the, the, the very essence of this character in this movie. And, you know, he, he worked early mornings and he'd come to the, the gym at the high school, open it up at 2.30 p.m. and, and stayed as long as, as kids were in there lifting. And, you know, four years of being far better at training for American football than playing it, you know, this guy became a mentor of sorts. And, you know, you've probably had experiences like this. You, you don't realize the value of a lesson, until you see it show up and its impact on you later on in life. And Rudy was one of those individuals. I, I thought he was a strength coach, just helping us be bigger, faster, stronger, teaching us good technique and how to lift weights. But with, with hindsight, he really taught me the value and how to be a great person. Like the lessons he would imbue in his storytelling about timeliness and how to keep the gym at a good standard and the stories that he would tell about himself as a kid. And it was because of him, it was because of him that I said, listen, I want to, I want to do that for the rest of my life. I want to help other people uh, achieve their goals in the same way that he helped so many of us high school students pursue ours. But, but he gave me 
a slightly different angle on it. He taught me the importance that you have to be people centric. You have to care about the person more than the player. And, and if you do that, that's truly how you win the hearts and minds of people and make a difference. And, and while that's front and center bumper sticker type stuff in sports, I think it's true in life as well. And so Rudy was the, the, the flame, the flicker that started me now on a, on a 20 year journey in high performance sport. It's, it's funny. Cause I've, I, I never really played sport to a, a high level. I enjoyed it and I still play sport yeah. now. But I've, for whatever reason, read a ton of sports psychology books. Or mm. uh, I remember reading, I forgot the name of it now. It's got linebacking, ultimate linebacking, I think the book's called. <laughs> okay, uh, okay. I, uh, I I read that a while back just because I find coaches' perspectives so valuable. And mm. they, they often think, uh, this is what I got when I was listening to one of your podcasts earlier, you often think about things that should be talked about in business, but isn't. And mm. you often track things incessantly and experiment on things and try things out that isn't tried in business and elsewhere that I, I don't ever see the crossover. So I, to be honest, have learned a lot more from professional sports and professional coaches and people like that on the way that they do things that applied it back to business than I have a lot of business people, other than maybe... Uh, you know, the wooden stuff, John Wooden, but yeah. he started in sports anyway, didn't he? Yeah, absolutely he did. Absolutely. Now, Wooden, wooden would be probably one of the, the number one influences on my own coaching and my own thinking about coaching. But you're dead right. The principles that Wooden put forth in kind of his pyramid of excellence are easily translatable to life as, as much as they are sport. I mean, at the end of the day, you know, sport is nothing more than a metaphor that, 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 that what we see in life, the mythology, it's just a, a narrative that plays out in a different form. You know, there's winners, there's losers, there's highs, there's lows, there's trials and tribulation. I mean, there, there's so much, and that's why people love to play sport in its infinite guises throughout life, because, you know, it's, it's a drama that you participate in, that you get something from. And so many of the lessons you learn translate and benefit all other aspects of life. And when you look at it from that perspective, that's why sport is so critical for, for culture and, and society. And as a proxy for, in most cases, war and violence. So it's so important to who we are as, as humans. Is why I often use a lot of the terms that I've learned when I'm even making digital things even when I'm making podcasts or doodles or writing tweets, using words like rep, practice, drill, yeah. you know, all these, all these things are skills that I've just basically nicked from sports and then utilize them to improve my craft, which is either podcasting or designing or, or writing or all that kind of thing. And so, so many people don't really seem to, realize the connection and even the simple thing of practice or drilling something yeah. uh yeah. you take any kind of sport um i don't know I, I, tennis is on my mind but we could yeah. take american football you you are drilling every single minute part of a movement to then build up to practicing the entire sport that that kind of thinking when you are trying to learn a craft 
in any essence of life is super helpful but for some reason people don't think like that well it's so so a couple different things come to mind there you know i was i was chatting with someone uh, just today around this idea of action versus thought and you know so many of us know we should exercise and know you know generally speaking what we should do we know that we should eat well and generally speaking uh, we know what to eat but in many cases there is this massive space between what we know and what we do and there's almost this, this action thought uh, you know, paradox. And for me, you cannot think yourself, at least with most things, you cannot think yourself into better behavior. And, and, and behavior is just a synonym for skill, is a synonym for habit. It's a synonym for an acquired action, right? It's just something that I can act out in the world consistently with an outcome that I want. That's what behavior, that's what action is, at least those that we pursue. And so, for example, in the heart of COVID, you know, the, the use of cold water, you know, the Wim Hof and various other was a big topic here in Ireland. And so my wife started first and she pulled me in and we started going to the water. And sure enough, you know, we talk about mental health and just the ability to get clarity of mind, to be present, to, to feel at peace or with inner balance. And I'd thought about this so much, but the second I started going to the water and actually spending, you know, four to six to 10 minutes in it and building that behavior, that action, I started to physically feel better. And so there was no amount of thinking that could have gotten me there only through action. And now we reverse that back to your point with, with sport, you know, every habit, every behavior, every skill needs to be earned and it's earned through absorption of repetition, absorption of action. When a baby comes into this world, they're not lock, stock, and barrel with all movement skills and language. They literally have their sensory toolbox and they have to absorb the world. And the more that they're exposed to something, the richer that absorption is, the more high definition their ability to mirror the world. This is why children watch what mom and dad does and mirrors it incessantly until they inevitably become what they're seeing. And that's ultimately what we are still doing as adults. When we see something we want, but we cannot physically achieve, we must continue to act as if. That's what practice is. That's what failure is. I'm acting as if, right? Even though I didn't get it today, if I continue on that path, inevitably I will become. And I think one of the challenges with the digital age and, and us spending so much time in kind of the thought craft, we forget that we have to take action if we want to actually change our behavior and yeah sport is a great metaphor for that i think the reason it works so well in sport is because it's so visceral isn't it it's a sport is an action it's all action it is um, it is so you can't think about sport well you can but most people don't think about sport and then not play it the the you, you wouldn't learn how to be a uh you know a center in american football unless you were yeah. going to play play ball but with a lot of other things when we're talking about the digital world it is very easy to think about the thing and learn about the thing uh, for, Certainly. for example becoming a learn about how to be a designer but never do it or learn about how to be a writer but never write it's very easy to assume in your own mind that the, the two things are very connected but in truth 
they're not. They're, they're not. They're not. I mean, you know, how many Monday morning quarterbacks talk about what should have happened in the game on the weekend with crystal clear clarity in their own mind, but put a football in their hand or at their feet, depending on where you are in the world, can they do it? No. You know, some of the greatest coaches in the world were not the greatest players. And so 100%, there is a difference, and I talk about this in my work all the time, between knowledge of what to do and knowledge of how to do it. The knowledge of what to do oftentimes exists in the space of language, but language is not a proxy for real life. Language is limited in its ability to clearly articulate everything that we do and experience as humans. And so it's a very crude way for us to share insights to get us on the path to action, but it is not a replacement or a proxy for action. And where most people fail is not in their knowledge of what to do. We already said this with diet and exercise as a singular example. The failure is in the, the knowledge and maybe the motivation in certain instances to actually put it into practice, the knowledge of how. I mean, let's stick with sport, Craig. You've played sports. I've played sports. Have you ever had the sense that, coach, I know what to do. I just don't know how to do it. Mm. I think that happens to us with so many things in life, sport being one of the obvious examples. And so how often now in the digital space as the recipient, just to stick with that as an example of information, I question how often are we cultivating our knowledge of what? Reading books, reading posts, consume, consume, consume. But are we actually running that through its full life cycle to turn it into something and express it to our knowledge of how to actually code, to actually go write a book, to actually go perform that skill? I think it's if we don't bring that to bear, we're going to feel like we have something, but yet something is missing. And that missing piece, I think, is, is the how. And so Simon Sinek wrote, start with why. I think we need to remember to finish with how. I think that is a, a missing peace in so many aspects of life right now. It's in the enacting, the actioning of all this information coming at us. I'd, I'd love to see what you think, Craig, but that's my sense of it. Mm, I, I, com- I completely agree. It's so with an abundance of information, both online, on Twitter, in books, newspapers, everywhere, with abundance of information, yeah. it's, it's very easy, especially if you're a curious person, particularly like me, to get stuck in reading and learning all, all of the time and the only way i found to, to get out of that is becoming fiercely focused on action to the point mm. of not learning anything and using action to learn what i need to learn in the point so as as an example the one i always use on the podcast um just a simple example of podcasting for me to learn podcasting I've done many, many of these challenges, but I like to do a, a thing every day for 365 days. And the way I did it with was with podcasting, one of the more recent ones in 2017. On the first day of me recording a podcast, I didn't even know how to record a podcast. But because I knew I was going to have to produce one by the end of the day, upload it and publish it online, it it kind of narrows your focus very, very definitely mm-hmm. because you there's no time to waste. You can't waste three months learning all the theory and the practice and radio technique and voice and all that kind of thing. You've just got to do. In the moment, you've got to do. Uh, you know, the kind of analogy to sport, it's 
you, you've got a minute left on the clock or whatever, and it's the last play. It, this is all you've got. You've got to take, you can't think and you've got to do. And I often try to put myself in that situation very, very regularly where I can't be bogged down by learning because I, I think ultimately that is a, it feels like a wider weakness of, of humanity. I don't think we can ever really pull away from wanting to learn things. We, we're all curious. So you have to force yourself into a scenario where action must be taken. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, we, we, we're spending our lives preparing to learn rather than actually learning in many, in many cases. So uh, just a couple anecdotes off to, to riff off your point. My last place I worked before joining Irish Rugby, I'd worked there for 10 years and I'd gotten to the point where I feel I had exhausted all of the minerals in the soil. I, I could not take any more from this place. And it had been an amazing journey. And equally, I was struggling to find ways to add additional value above and beyond what I was already doing. And it was at that point that I felt, yeah, I needed to get into a different fishbowl. I could no longer see the forest for the trees. I didn't know what I was in. You know, the old adage of the old fish swims up to the two young fish and says, hey, nice water today. And the young fish say, what water? I did not know what I did not know in the space I was in. And so my wife and I made the very purposeful decision to try to find a job in another country. And we were completely open to it being in pro sport, possibly academia, football, football, the various footballs we have over here, <laughs> Olympic sport. Uh, and we were, we were open to that, knowing that as a family, and in my case, as a, as a professional in sport, that it was only in entering into that new environment, that new water, that you'd be forced to swim. It would be unavoidable. You would have to learn, and you'd either thrive or you'd, you die if you sink or swim. And so that was, that was purposeful in our coming over, over here. And, you know, the other point is, Craig, you, you highlight something that I feel is very uh, ancient. It's, it's very implicit in who we are as humans in that, you know, the, the classic idea of an apprenticeship, you know, you would, you would go on the job and you would learn by observation, by doing, by getting hands-on. It wasn't like, hey, here's three textbooks, you know, even probably in most certainly in early medicine, that would have been the case. It would have been through observation. And I remember, fortunately for me, uh, when I was working in an internship with the Pittsburgh Pirates, it's a U.S.-based Major League Baseball team, but I was in the minor leagues, hot freaking summer, had to bring three shirts to work every day. And I went to work for this guy named Aaron Mattis. Now, Aaron Mattis had earned his name, or so to speak, his name had been attached to this, this specific stretching technique called AIS, active isolated stretching. And he had this literally, literally in kind of a strip mall, he had this box of a room that he shoved, you know, six stretch beds and literally Craig, people from all over the world, both students who wanted to learn this technique, but also patients from all over the world would fly to see this individual. And so fortunately for me, I had a contact that knew him, made an introduction, and I'd go see him at the end of work. He would be stretching people from eight in the morning till 10 p.m. at night, literally 
all day, not the same person, Craig, but he would be <laughs> working with people all day long. And I'll never forget the moment I walked into this place, he pointed at a bed. He pointed at the, the person and said, okay, I want you to start to work on Craig's hamstrings. I said, I don't know what to do. He's like, you'll learn. And in a matter of three months, I went there three to four times a week. I, I learned the technique, but I could not articulate to you, Craig, what I knew. I could show you though. But what's more valuable? At the end of the day, I wanted to become the skill. I wanted to embody the skill of this master, so to speak. And we could think of the metaphors, the analogies for that in many different other areas. And so to your point, if we do not embed ourselves, if we do not allow ourselves the opportunity to fail, we cannot, and I like this word, absorb what we seek, because that's the only way it's going to become part of us. And, and you know, if, if we just leave it in the province of the mind, we're forgetting half the equation. There's a reason we call it mind-body. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I do like that phrase, absorbing it. I, it's been quite, it's been quite close to my mind recently, because... After I stopped playing American football, I moved to jiu-jitsu, Brazilian jiu-jitsu. Okay. Yeah, I like yeah. violent sports. I'm a really calm guy, but I like violent sports. You, you've got to get your fix somewhere. Yeah, so, absolutely. So I, I went to Brazilian jiu-jitsu, and Brazilian jiu-jitsu, bearing in mind I used to play American football, which is a complicated sport. You've, you've got, to, got to have some of your wits about you if you're playing certain positions, especially center. Um, yes. <laughs> and, and, and Brazilian jiu-jitsu blew American football out of the water. This, this is a sport with, you know, you look at another fighting discipline like boxing, for example, and if you talk about moves, as in hook, right, straight, you know, that kind of thing, you maybe have 20 or 30 moves as such to learn. And in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, the moves that you need to learn is over 4,000 and growing every day. So the, the, wow. the sport of itself is an incredibly complicated sport. Uh, let alone to talk about the whole mental game that goes with it uh, and, and everything else, which pervades any sport. But something I learned quite quickly when I went to Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, and it's something I never really, never clicked with me, with me when I played football, was that it was more important for me to be feeling and learning, uh, to, to take an example, learning how to choke somebody. It was more important for me to learn how to choke somebody or to control an arm, or to control a leg, or to pin somebody, than it was for me to be able to articulate it. You had to feel it. And what the structure that most classes take is that you get taught a movement or, or a little portion of a movement, you go away and drill it, and then the latter half of the class, the last 30 minutes, is always sparring. So you actually mm-hmm. get to feel the thing that you're doing in a live 100% uh pressure scenario where somebody's literally fighting you and that's so necessary for brazilian jiu-jitsu because so much of it is about controlling another body that's moving that's trying to go against the thing that you're doing so the the perfect thing that you've just been taught never works and it it can take you i don't know four or five months to be able to even do the thing that you've just been taught because you have to learn to feel how it feels, how it works in different scenarios, different pressure, and all that kind of thing. And even now, I've been doing jiu-jitsu about probably four years at this point, 
there's a lot of things I couldn't articulate, just like you was talking about. But if you if you name a thing to me, I can do it, but maybe not explain the steps, but I can do it yeah. in a way that it's going to work on the vast majority of people who I would try to put it on. I, I, and I, th- I think that feeling something uh even even when we're not talking about tangible feeling things you know learning how to write or speak even and those kind of things you have to feel you have to feel the skill <laughs> okay you know what we're what we're talking about here is it, it's at the fundamental core of what it means to be a, be a human in the world a human acting in that act as a sub form of action, not acting as being fake in the physical world. And that we are constantly in and engaging with this dynamic environment. I mean, so many things we take for granted, you know, you, you knock over a glass and you quickly reach your hand out to grab it without even thinking you just reacted. We do these things all throughout the day. And there's some of the most beautiful complex actions that we just take for granted. And I think somewhere along the way, we started to give greater uh, credit, greater uh, recognition to the ability to articulate something, to rationalize it, to take it out of the world of feeling and emotion. In fact, extract the feeling and the emotion and just give me the raw remains because that is superior. That is unadulterated logic. It is purely objective. And working in sport, I have a lot of that. You know, we have a lot of data. We have a lot of trying to, uh, you know, uh, if, if you would understand the objective me- me- uh, metrics that give rise or at least lend themselves to predicting, I use that word very loosely, performance or, or risk. But, you know, when we, when we take a book like Descartes' Error and we look at the importance of emotion in rationality, the importance of emotion and feeling in logic, the role of intuition throughout life and expertise, it's, it's paramount. And we all know this. I mean, driving a car, if you had to think about every motion of your body, let alone the wheel, let alone, you know, the, the, the shifter or the brakes, the gas pedal, if you had to think through all of that, you'd be fundamentally paralyzed. And so we oftentimes look down upon the very skill set we have that allows us to be humans and deal with the complexity around us. And again and again, we go to the value of the word, the ability to articulate, the ability to be logical. And don't get me wrong, that is critical. I spend a lot of my day examining my own decision-making and saying, was this logical? Is there good evidence for this? But at the same time, trying to balance that and use that to educate the intuition, to educate the field, to educate the emotion, as well as the other way around. And I think just what it means to be a good human requires us to be fully, let's say, in touch or engaged or aware of or listening to that intuitive felt state. It's critical. Do you think technology has changed the kind of job you do 
wholly for the positive? No. No. I think I think when used correctly, it can, Craig. I think when used correctly, it can. But many, there's many voices in human performance that are trying to fight for the human once again, as if we are trying to turn every player into a bunch of ones and zeros and explain everything from a spreadsheet, which I'll be honest, we're not very good at doing. You know, if anything, what technology has allowed us to do is be very consistent at what we do. Uh, Does that mean what we're doing is fundamentally right? No, but we are now consistent in understanding what we're doing and the impact of it. And that's then the starting point to say, if we nudge this, let's see what happens. If we change that, let's see what happens. And so really what data has given us is increased understanding of how the human body responds to what we impose on it. But we run a risk if we listen to that data more than the person it's, it's emerging from. And so I, I can at least speak from an Irish rugby context. We are very, very focused on using data, keeping it in the background, sharing appropriate information for the player, but being player-centered. That means, Craig, how are you doing? How are you feeling? How are you responding? The data helps me ask you better questions. It doesn't make decisions for me or for you. Mm. I, I, I can relate. There's, there's a lot of areas in my life. I mainly work in technology, but I dabble in sports and, and lots of kind of other things. And I, I can see the way that technology has impacted a lot of those things. Um, it, even a personal anecdote, recently, up until very recently, I wore an Apple Watch every day. Um, I, I wore it for about a year and a half, and it tracked everything about me. Yes. It tracked my sleep, tracked my heart rate, tracked every time I went on a walk, just on a walk up the street, it tracked that. Uh, and I was collecting all this data, and I thought, okay, okay this is good in some way I just automatically assumed it was good and then one day I just woke up and thought why why am I tracking all this I am healthy you know you know I I am of a healthy way I I exercise a lot I lift weights my heart rate's low I know all these things are objectively true and you can see them in yourself anyway I'm not tired when I walk up hills or stairs or that kind of thing so why am I tracking it so I stopped and you know what, objectively my life hasn't changed in any way Mm. Um, other than it probably feeling a little bit better in terms of that I'm more present in the moment now. Even something as simple as going for a walk turned into exercise. And there's a very big difference (laughs) between that. Going for a walk, walk versus exercise. Just going for a walk, you know, I go for a walk now for fun. There's no metrics attached to it, no mileage, no heart rate, no time length and if i feel like that just as a a normal human i can't imagine what some of that might feel like on a professional athlete if they get bombarded with that kind of thing yeah and and, and that's why that's why so much of it is uh partitioned from them it's it's meant to help us engage them more richly as as a human versus taking it away because you're 100 right you start showing a player hey, here's how many meters you ran in a session. 
compared to your, your buddy over here who's competing for the same exact position, all of a sudden the game of rugby becomes for the, the competitive nature of this person about running more meters. And literally there's stories of players who instead of on the, on the whistle taking a break and grabbing water are taking the long way around to get their meters up. And, and this is stuff that when you are not uh, sensible and purposeful in how you are using and presenting data to a player, uh, it absolutely can have negative, I'd argue, psychological consequences, say what you will about physical. And it's funny you'd say about the Apple Watch, because I've just gotten into cycling, uh, another one, thanks to my wife, over the last couple months. And I have the Apple Watch as well. And I, I remember when I for, when I have forgotten to turn it on to track the ride, you know, whatever it was, the 30K, 60K, and I get back from it, I felt a little bit worse, as if it hadn't happened. And in, in that exact moment, Craig, I had the exact, I'm like, what the heck? <laughs> My body still cashed in on all that physical work. It was amazing. As they say over here, it was good crack. There was a good chat. There was good speed. Everything was amazing. And now because I realized I didn't hit a little freaking button on this, you know, this, this, this bit of plastic and metal on my wrist, it's ruined my day. I was like, there's not, now I'm still using it, but I recognize, I recognize exactly where you're coming from. And yeah, it's just that, that, that little micro taxation on your attention, but all the time that that's what technology is, right? The FOMO, the fear of missing out. Oh, let me just check. Let me just check. And people don't realize this. It, it, it can at times take away from their ability, as you say, just to be present. But if you leave the watch, you leave the phone. I know when I'm on holiday, and I just turn it all off. I'm able to achieve a level of presence and balance that I that I just simply cannot achieve, you know, when it's a normal work week. I'm still good, but it's different. And it's like, okay, how do we how do we get more of that inner balance feeling all the time? Because you know, our 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 time on this ride is quite short. And as far as I'm concerned, we only get one ticket to do it. And so I want to spend as much of my life with that inner peace, that balance, and, and you said an important word, the ability to be present. I mean, I, I don't know how much you follow, let's say some of the more uh, Eastern, you know, contemplative traditions, but I've been reading a lot from Alan Watts lately, and who was a, a massive voice in kind of translating Eastern philosophy, Zen Buddhism, most notably for a Western audience. And most of his work was in the 50s and 60s, but Craig, I mean, just listening didn't talk about, you know, how to be present. And, and, and to be honest with you, everything we've been talking about is verbatim representative of that Eastern philosophy. The idea that there is, you know, verbal and action-oriented Buddhism. And, and the fact that action-oriented Buddhism is the primary way when one is asked the question, what is Zen? You know, someone will, will throw their fan across the room because Zen is the act of being utterly present and awake. So any action, if fully present, is an action of Zen. And so, so often we think that if it can't be put into words, it doesn't exist. But the reality is it's the complete opposite. Mm. No, you, you, you're completely right. It's it's something I've been considering a lot more, particularly as I, I got rid of the Apple Watch and I made a couple of other changes, like starting to read real books instead of Kindle, even though I've got the Kindle. Um, <laughs> trying to be a little bit more present, spending less time on Twitter, those kind of things. Um, but I think it comes back to the same point that we were discussing before, the difference between thinking and doing. I think mm. if 
when I'm engaged, and it's one reason why I love jujitsu so much, why I loved American football, when you're engaged in the activity, in the action, nothing else exists on, on the planet. And when you are pulled out of that for various reasons, because you've got a thing strapped to your wrist that tells you how many miles you've done or how many minutes you've done, or you, you've, you've got a coach on the sideline telling you, oh, you've run five meters, you need to run 10 more, or any of those things that pull you out of the, the activity that you're performing right now. I often, I often wonder, not, not that I've got any scientific basis on any of this, you'll probably be able to correct me. Um, I often wonder if maybe this is, this is really at the core of why some high performers might not do that well sometimes, that they're just stuck thinking. They're stuck thinking in their head rather than acting, rather than just yeah. doing. A hundred percent. But th this though, this is the challenge, Craig. If I tell you, don't think about a big pink elephant, all your mind wants to do is think about a big pink elephant. And the more you say, don't think about the big pink elephant, the more you reinforce it because the thought of not thinking about it is the same as thinking about it. And so often players are told, and it drives them insane, oh, just relax, stay calm, right? Well, in the act of trying to be calm, you exert the effort that is the antithesis of calm. Mm. And, and this, is, this is where to be present, you can't talk about it. You can't think your way into it. You must act your way into it. You know, and how do we do that? Well, every single moment is an opportunity to be fully present. And let's be clear. It's not to say that we are suggesting that thinking somehow is antithetical to being present. No, but when you're thinking, are you present in your thoughts? Right? Are, are you there with the thoughts? Are you thinking through something? Are you there on purpose by choice? Versus when you are playing your sport, are you completely present? That is not the time to be thinking about the sport. And so, so often we emphasize the knower versus the known, right? The perceiver versus the perceived. Ultimately, as humans, the whole idea of a knower as someone having an experience is utter nonsense, all there is is experience, and it's what you choose to place your attention on that will define it. And so if you are what you eat, you most certainly are what you pay attention to. And so what we're talking about here is the fundamental feature of the mind that allows us to access the world, both inner and outer, and that's our attention. And you know the great coaches know how to coach in a way that encourages action without thought about action. That's the move. It's using language that by its very nature encourages action rather than thoughts about action. And so let me just give you a simple example. A lot of my own work from a coaching perspective is in sprinting. And so even if no one listening or watching this has ever themselves coach sprinting, uh, I'm, I'm sure everyone at some point has run. And so we all probably can relate to that most fundamental of human actions. And so 
I'll offer up some language here we use to coach sprinting. And then I'll, I'll just, I'll get your opinion on something here, Craig. So imagine Usain Bolt, right? But you're now Usain Bolt. You're you, you're in, you're at the Olympics, you're in the blocks. Okay. That's kind of the headspace we're in. And what I'm going to do is, you know, I'm a, I'm a mystic. I come to you. <laughs> I come to you in the, in the waiting area before your name is called. And you know, kind of like Jack and the Beanstalk, rather than offering you up beans, I'm gonna I'm gonna offer up magical thoughts, and I'm gonna tell you one of these thoughts is gonna help you run a faster hundred meter. And you're at the Olympics, so of course you, you want the thought. But the key is I'm not gonna tell you which thought is gonna help you run the fast one. You have to choose for yourself. So the mystic offers you up thought number one, right? Focus on extending your knees coming out of the blocks focus on extending your knees okay then the mystic says okay offer number two focus on exploding off the blocks or focus on exploding away from the blocks offer number three imagine there is a rattlesnake curled up right behind the blocks about to strike your ankle beat the bite beat the bite. And so the, the mystic offers you up those three bits of language. Craig, for you, which one do you take? Well, just listen to my thing. The first two I've forgotten already. So the the third one, beat the bite, is already stuck in my head. So it's it's got to be the third one, right? Okay. So so beat the bite, which is cool because then what? when the gun goes off, that's a bang. So beat the bite, beat the bang. So what we've done here is when, when I tell you to extend your knee, I dehumanize you. I break you into particles. I break you into parts. I describe you. When I tell you to push the blocks away, that's an action. That implies the whole body but it's not overly interesting. There's nothing about it that really tells you how to do it. But when you imagine a rattlesnake quite literally being behind you, the number one natural, spontaneous, visceral response is to move the opposite direction as quickly as humanly possible. And so in offering up that third option, you're right evidence, research, and your own intuition, Craig, would tell you that that, yes, it's language, but it's language that prioritizes action, that offers you up a thought that easily translates to the how, whereas the other two, to a lesser degree. And so this is, this is my work, this is my world, has been spent studying and practicing identifying the language of action, the language of how. Respecting that we need the language of what. If you're a sprinter, Craig, you're still going to want to know the biomechanical stuff. You're going to want to know that I know what I'm looking at. And yes, that serves a purpose. But when it comes to the practice, the absorption of the practice to actually change Craig, you, I need to offer you up language that translates into action, into how. And Ultimately, that's the language that brings you into the present moment, that invites you to be utterly present in an action that relates to the moment you're in. 
And that's where imagining, even though it's not real, it feels real. And in that case, you act as if it's real. And the result is certainly real. What's so fascinating about that is that it's metaphor and analogy. And it is. I use metaphor and analogy so much as well to teach other things. Uh, Bingo. Purely because it's it's just so powerful. It just gets into somebody's brain. Just drills its way into yeah. I'm doing it right now. It drills into it's a Trojan somebody's horse. Brain. Yeah. It it just drills into somebody's brain immediately. Because when you were saying the other things before, I was thinking, right, how do I even extend my knee? What, 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 <laughs> isn't the knee, you know, isn't the knee fixed there? How how do I do that? And like, okay, okay, I'll extend the knee. Now I'm thinking, well, I need to kick something. So is this a kick yeah. or is this yeah. a push? Uh, yeah. It just confused me, confused me more. So and another question to follow up then is, is when a pro athlete, when they're stuck in the head, is that because of the coach, because of bad coaching usually, or, or is it because of the athlete? Uh, you know, it's okay. So I just, I just finished a study that tried to answer that question. So when we look at coaching behavior, and by that I mean what they say when they're teaching, physios, physical therapists for my friends in the States, when we look at what they're saying, we know that by a significant margin, over 50% of what a lot of coaches and physios and strength coaches are saying falls into kind of this technical jargon. We call them internal cues because they're internal to the body. They break the body into the parts. And they confuse describing the body to the person with actually coaching them how to use the body. That that's So it's a failure of omission. It's not that what they're saying by itself is fundamentally flawed, but it is fundamentally flawed for the purpose they're using it. And so it's, it's this use of what we call external language, language referencing the environment or goals or metaphor, analogy, that treats the body as a whole and invites action through the outcomes, even if they are metaphorical, that we're trying to achieve. It's almost like, think of it as, what, what, uh, how does a kid learn? A kid watches other people move and they just mirror them. Well, when I offer you an analogy like beat the bite, you, ima- you simulate watching yourself or someone sprinting away from a snake about to grab the ankle and you move as if. And so it, it's a, it's a, brilliant, very natural way to absorb the world around you and act as if until you become. And so when we, when we listen to a lot of coaches, Craig, yes, it would seem that they use language that is going to increase the odds of people having to do what you did when you heard about extending the knee. They're having to think through the body in parts uh, as if it's some kind of Lego that needs to be rapidly, you know, piece together to do the simplest of tasks, like, you know, hitting a baseball. And the the reality is, you know, at at a symphony, how many conductors are there? There's one, there's a ton of instruments, but there's one conductor. The equivalent is trying to coach you by having you play all the instruments, Craig, no one would ever do that. But yet that's how we coach oftentimes. Hey, you got to think about this and that and that. No, no, no. Our cues, the language we offer you to help you do something better should be like a conductor. It should be a simple idea that coordinates all the orchestra, orchestrates the joints and the muscles to harmonize as one. Now you ask the question, is it the coaches? My sense is 
In large part, yes. Why do I say that? Well, we just offered up a survey to 125 college students, equal men and women, equal athlete, non-athlete. And we gave them 16 movements. So gym movements like the bench press, sport movements like hitting a golf ball, athletic movements like jumping and sprinting, 16 movements in total. And we gave them a video of the movement and the little activity I did with you about the mystic, that's basically what we did on every single one of those. We said, okay, to maximize the weight lifted, to maximize the speed run, to maximize your accuracy. And then we offered up these, these categories of cues, internal cues, the highly technical stuff, external cues, and then analogies. And over 80%, didn't matter gender or sport background, over 80% of them self-selected external cues or analogies with the minority being that internal, technical, highly descriptive, play every instrument type of language. And so with those two sources of evidence in my own experience, Craig, I would say that in large part, we as the instructors of the world are the ones possibly uh, offering up cognitive pollution. Certainly there are athletes that are overthinkers that will seek information to their own demise. I'm not saying it's only our fault but it's, it's time that the world of coaching movement recognized it has a role to play in athletes underperforming and humans, let's say, underlearning compared to what we know is possible when the right language is offered up. Yeah, I, I can think, of, just as you were saying that, I love the term cognitive pollution, by the way. That is absolutely fantastic. I've never heard that <laughs> term before. Um just as you were saying that, I was thinking about some other examples that I know because I was thinking of the bench press. I thought, oh, I do the bench press. How would I describe that movement to somebody? And one, just one tiny key of it that I just remember off the top of my head that somebody either taught me or I read was bend the bar. To keep the tension in the bar, bend the bar. Yeah, 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 yeah. But, yeah. but try and bend the bar. And then I was just thinking about, you know, the deadlift. I do the deadlift as well. I, I once read about... Imagine that you're trying to stomp your feet through the floor, basically. Yep. So you, the, the the movement isn't the hinge, although it is. It, you imagine you're trying to put your feet through the floor instead. Helped me that. And then in football, I was just thinking the same. When I was tackling somebody, the coach always used to say to me, watch the hips. Don't, don't watch anything yeah. else. Pay attention to the hips. Doesn't matter what anything yeah. else in the body's doing as you're trying to track them across the field. The hips don't lie, I think was yes. the actual actual phrase that used to be used. The hips don't lie. And it's crazy that all those things, I would have learned those, some of them decades, you know, 10, 12 years ago now. The hips don't lie, bend the bar, stomp the floor. Um, the, the bite thing. <laughs> they stay with you. They stay with you. They, they do. They they stay with you. And I I, I wonder when when you're when you're on the blocks at the Olympics and you Usain Bolt and if you have been given the wrong language and I'm 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 there. I'm already stressed because you're going to be stressed. You can't get away from mm -hmm. that. It's part of the game. I'm already stressed. I I know I know I need to win because I want to win. Right, I need to straighten the leg and then I need to kick out and, and then I need to swing the arms and just 
just try just trying to think of all those things it's like every time you go to those like you said it's like learning to drive a car again none of yeah. those yeah none of those things ever become natural if you are being told to do them constantly even though you See, do them already yeah. uh, 100% Craig we as a society and I heard this in again in the 1950s but I was listening to an Alan Watts lecture and he's and this was back in the 50s he's saying this like we as society in his amazing english accent <laughs> we as a society overvalue voluntary action and we undervalue involuntary or natural action and that oh i felt like you know, stomp like someone stomped on my chest just it hit me so hard that our heart beats our organs work we breathe the most fundamental complex life sustaining actions we have no voluntary control over some of the most beautiful things that we can do to dance to music to ride a bike to walk while discussing philosophy with a friend along the green is completely thoughtless utter present natural spontaneous and if the greatest things are life and that should we not be engaging with people in such a way to offer them up new skills behaviors and actions that they themselves can become the province of natural spontaneous because when something is truly a part of you it doesn't require thought you don't have to think about what you already are and for me that that's that's a philosophy to live your life by let alone a philosophy to drive how you should coach beautiful point to end on we're at 58 minutes and it's a perfect time <laughs> to end it, it. it's, it's been awesome awesome man i would love 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 to have a chat again at some point let's do uh, it i loved it there's so much i just want to carry on talking for hours and that's the best kind yeah. of conversation uh the music's on for about another 30 seconds i know you've just released a book so you probably want to tell people about that sure no the language of coaching there you go the language of coaching the art and science of teaching movement on amazon it had its one year birthday in may so i i've i've just discovered it and i'm going to pick it up as well because i'm absolutely fascinated well, on the the whole language thing and i think it can be applied to places where it should already be applied but I, it isn't i think you're the kind of person to do that translation craig absolutely <laughs> thanks so much man and we'll chat again soon. Thank you. We'll talk soon. Cheers, brother.